0: about Jesus um, down there. Fog is a very disorienting phenomenon, especially when a person is at sea. The vast, dense fog, in many ways, fogs the mind. It prevents one from seeing a clear path to safety and can lead ships into dangerous waters. Ship crews need something to break through the fog. Hence, the existence of lighthouses. I don't know if we think about lighthouses very often these days. But lighthouses are crucial to breaking through to safety. One writer said, Lighthouses serve to warn mariners of dangerous shallows and perilous rocky coasts, and they help guide vessels safely into and out of harbors. The message of these long-trusted aids to navigation are simple. Either stay away, danger, beware, or come this way. In a dense fog, lighthouses warn of danger and call to safety. This morning, we continue our series, Questioning Christianity, with an incredibly difficult question Doesn't the church have a history of oppression, abuse, and hatred? As soon as we ask that question, we find ourselves in a dense fog. We need the light that will guide us from danger into safety. As we have throughout the series, we will be bouncing around a lot. All of the scriptures will be up on the screen. Try to follow along with me in your Bibles if you have them. But just as a matter of preface, we read... From Romans 13, 12, this is the word of the Lord. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's ask for the Spirit's assistance this morning. Lord God, we come to you knowing that without your Spirit, we are not capable of any good thing so lord by your spirit open our eyes our minds our hearts to what you would say to us this morning in your word humble us beneath the weight of your glory that you might be glorified in and through us we pray in jesus name amen when we ask about the history of the church and oppression It does not take long till we have to reckon with Christians and the relationship to slavery. Now, there were many Christians who, in light of the gospel, fought against slavery, who fought for abolition. I was pleasantly surprised this morning. I found a quote from one of my most favorite theologians in the 12th century, Anselm of Canterbury, at the Council of London, said this. He said, let no one dare hereafter to engage in the infamous business prevalent in England of selling men like animals. And then later in the 19th century, William Wilberforce in the UK and the English Parliament, in light of the gospel, abolished slavery in England. But... Parts of the christian church were at different times apathetic to slavery or at worse active supporters in it especially in america in 1852 frederick douglas a freed slave an escaped slave made pastor and leader in the abolition movement was invited to preach a sermon at a, at a friend's church of his. And he titled the sermon, and it was a sermon on July 5th. And the sermon was titled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? He had this to say about the American church. These ministers make religion a cold and flinty-hearted thing, having neither principles of right action nor bowels of compassion. They strip the love of God of its beauty, and leave the throng of religion a huge, horrible, repulsive form. It is a religion for oppressors, tyrants, man-stealers, and thugs. A religion which favors the rich against the poor. Which exalts the proud above the humble. Which divides mankind into two classes. Tyrants and slaves. Which says to the man in chains, stay there. And to the oppressor, oppress These are difficult and sobering words. Even after emancipation, segregation continued. Parts of the church were cold toward their black brothers and sisters and neighbors. Even Billy Graham. Billy Graham, who did oppose racism and lamented race relations in his time, did not desegregate until 1954. And even just two years before that, in 1952, after receiving criticism for trying to desegregate one of his crusade meetings, he said this, I feel that I have been misinterpreted on race segregation. We follow the existing social customs in whatever part of the country in which we minister. As far as I have been able to find in my study of the Bible, it has nothing to say about segregation or non-segregation. I came to Jackson to preach only the Bible and not to enter into local issues. This is very unfortunate. And this was only 70 years ago. We must not think of oppression as a thing of the past. The American church was at one time the perpetrator of such oppression. And at other times, the American church was apathetic in its relations to these realities. And today, we are certainly in danger of ignoring the issues that still linger. But we can't. We must deal with the fog caused by oppression and look to the light that calls us To see the danger in order to make it safely to the shore. We answer this issue by hearing God's call to an unfailing pursuit of godly unity. We read in Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. There is in every man An equalizing factor. An essential characteristic that transcends ethnicity. Something that breaks the bonds of being tied to any non-essential quality. That we are all, every man and woman, every ethnicity created in the image of God. And this means, according to Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff said this, that he is distinguished from all other creatures and stands as the supreme, as supreme, the head and crown of the entire creation. And every man and woman of every ethnicity is created in the image of God and is the crown and head of creation and has inherent value and dignity and worth. Amen? Everyone. Everyone. Is created in God's image. But not only the image of God. But we pursue godly unity. As those redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That we read in revelation. That great song. Sung by the saints in eternity. Worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe. And language. And people. And nation. That Christ has died for all kinds of people, from every place, with any skin color. That no matter our skin color, our essential identity as those in Christ is washed with the blood. Ransomed for God. And the light of Christ's redeeming work establishes for us here in the church beautiful, godly unity. Friends, what are we to do in light of these things? Well, first, say we pursue family unity. As the family of God, as Christ's church, we pursue family unity. That we are brothers and sisters. Amen. That we are one in Christ together. And that those in Christ, as the family of God, we are called to love one another and to flee partiality. That we don't play favoritism here based on any factor whatsoever. As James says in his epistle, if you really fulfill the law, the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We pursue family unity. We also pursue kingdom diversity. We know that the new heavens and the new earth is going to be filled with all kinds of people. Amen. And that the church, the church is an, an in-breaking of that reality, that when we show up on a Sunday morning, we see all kinds of people, a beautiful and incredible kingdom diversity. So we pray for, and we pursue this diversity, to love one another, to love what does make us unique. Because those are created uniqueness, and they are reflective of God's glory. Brothers and sisters, we cut through the fog caused by the church's history of oppression by pursuing the light of godly unity. Now I wish truly, truly that that were the end of the matter. That we could just stop there. But we come to another issue. An unfortunate question that must be dealt with. Doesn't the church have a history of abuse? Concerning Child Abuse, the 2019 Caring Well Report of the Southern Baptist Convention says this. According to three insurance companies that insure a majority of Protestant congregations in the United States, there are approximately 260 annual reports of children being sexually, sexually abused by ministers or other church workers. This is more reports than the Roman Catholic Church concerning adult women in a 2008 study done by Baylor. It says, in the average American congregation of 400 persons with women representing, on average, 60% of the congregation, there are, on average, of seven women who have experienced clergy sexual misconduct. But we also must not miss that men have also suffered abuse in the church. I only know of anecdotes, and as far as I could see, there is no hard data on this statistic whatsoever. Um, But according to the CDC, just generally in America, nearly, nearly one in four men in the U.S. experienced some kind of contact sexual violence in their lifetime. Surely this statistic must touch on the church. Somehow, in some way. Abuse is unfurthered by a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of the nature of grace and forgiveness that leads some to sweep under the rug what should be criminally prosecuted. And connected With physical abuse is the most sinister kind of abuse, and that is spiritual abuse. That it leaves the abused person without hope because it makes God out to be an abuser himself. It's an abuse of the body and of the soul. Abuse in the church has caused a dense fog. It is a weight upon not just the mind, but the soul. The stories are heartbreaking, and the anger is real. So what are we to do? We can't ignore it. We need to deal with the fog that abuse has caused in order to make it safely to the shore. Friends, We answer this issue by hearing God's call to steadfastly pursue godly protection. We read in Psalm 10, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Friends, God is an avenger. He is a protector, a refuge, and a comforter. That God is a refuge to those who suffer at the hands of abusers. And that his call is not to run back into the arms of abusers, but to run into his caring, loving arms. That he is not an abuser. But is the supreme good, the one who cares for and protects all those who are abused. He will comfort and he will protect and he will exercise and execute justice on all oppressors, on all abusers. And in this, we hear Christ's words in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. No matter what abuse has been suffered, Christ is always ready to embrace that he does not move away from the abused, but he moves towards them to comfort them to bring them peace, to embrace them. And it's so many ways to enter into their suffering as a loving, caring God, as a loving friend, as one who suffered on our behalf. In him the abused can find rest for their souls. But as we talk this way, we, we also must not think that there is a a dividing wall between God and between his church. When a church church fails at its mission, when it fails to protect the abuse, church leaders have failed when they perpetrate abuse or become unconcerned with it. But this failure should not lead to abandoning christ's church christ's bride it should propel us to see and to know what christ's purposes are for relationships in his church that christ has ordered and commanded his people to live and exist in such a way that sin cannot hide but comes out in the light that it's exposed through Christian discipleship that as we live with one another as we spend time together that, that that which would hide in the darkness is exposed to the light that we want to pursue open and honest relationships in this place that we want to be people who first and foremost listen and comment later we want to extend the hope of the gospel To those who are hurt we want to pursue godly relationships godly relationships Christian discipleship becomes the foundation upon which protection can thrive but we also want to see and pursue godly marriages to teach and to know what godly marriages look like And I want to say, without any confusion of terms, that God has created marriage to function in such a way that a husband and a wife are to pursue oneness of heart and mind in a complementary way. That husbands are not to lord over their wives, to coerce or demand. Rather, husbands, as Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A husband's duty is to lovingly lead by serving and sacrificing. And wives are not called to suffer under abusers. Never. Rather, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That submission is defined as a voluntary yielding in love. Their wives seek to build up what the Lord is doing in the home by voluntarily yielding in love to their husband's loving leadership. And that in both cases, love is what is supposed to be at the heart, at the essence of a godly marriage. And that love is seeing, wanting to see goodness formed in one another, that abuse is a trashing of that. It's a trashing of God's design for godly marriages. Healthy and godly marriages serve to protect and to build a culture of godly protection. God also calls his church to love and protect children. That Christ himself advocated and loved children. He he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them to such belong the kingdom of heaven. We want children to be safe here in this place. We can, like, connect one of the, the things that we do, right? Children's check-in. Why does children's check-in exist? Why should we check in our kids? Because we want to keep them safe. Right. We want to keep them safe so that they can come here, they can learn about Jesus, so that nothing can hinder them from that. And as elders, it is our calling to foster godly protection. To shepherd the flock of God that it is among you. That pastors cannot be all things to all people. But we recognize that God works through many avenues. That God has ordained the government to wield the sword against evildoers. That it is not unloving to get law enforcement involved in problems. Medically, want to point people to helpful resources that there are people that are trained in trauma that there are trauma experts there are ways I recognize after the listening that I've done this week that there are ways that I cannot even identify. Certain issues caused by trauma. I don't know how to see all the signs. But there are people who do. But as pastors, as elders in this church, spiritually, it is our job to care for your souls. To lead you to Christ. As your enduring hope. As our only comfort in life and in death is the only comfort for the hurt and abused that Christ himself desires to welcome, greet, and comfort those who are hurt. Brothers and sisters, abuse is painful, and it's damaging. And that it has happened in churches casts a dark shadow on Christ and his bride we must not give up hope. We must not give up hope. Rather, we must cut through it by looking to God and his desire to protect his people through his church. That as a church, we cut through the fog caused by abuse, by leading people into the light of God's protection. The light of God's hope. Amen? But some might say, simply, that the church cannot be unified. It can't protect anyone. Because at the end of the day, doesn't the church have a history of just hatred? Friends, it is true that some have used the Christian faith to perpetuate hatred. One of our heroes Martin Luther late in his life wrote a treatise titled On the Jews and Their Lies and had many hateful things to say in that work. In the past Christians have had violent relationships with Muslims. The Christians even have often hated each other. That in some ways, 500 years ago, we as a church could not be meeting publicly right now because we only baptize on confession of faith. That we would be illegal because of certain church-state arrangements. We even run into this Criticism often. That Christians. They just hate anyone and everyone. Because they disagree with them. Because they don't just accept anyone. They're intolerant. They're hatred. We hear the phobia language. There might even be real examples. Of people who profess Christ. We think of. Pepper do hateful things when I think of westboro baptist church and their signs god hates fags or even when they go to soldiers funerals and they have signs that says god loves ieds this is hateful this is wicked hate does fog The Christian message. It obscures the purposes of the church in the world. The purpose of the church is this, friends. To be a light of godly love. So we answer this issue by hearing God's call to pursue godly love. Jesus said, you have heard it said, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. It is the will of Christ that his church love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. That love is at the core of Christ's message. It's at the core of the Christian faith. Can we admit that the church at times has been unloving? We certainly can. And we must. Or else we won't see we won't see the heart of the Christian church. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. The one, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for their, who for their sake died and was raised. That the love of Christ is at the heart of all Christian ethics. How can we hate others? Even though Christ had every reason to hate us because of our sin, instead he died for us. Even more, he lived for us, he prayed for us, he died for us. He died for you and me. How can we hate in light of such love. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. I just preached this recently, but the great psalm, the great hymn of love, where it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. But love has as its object The beloved, and that it has the good of others in mind. That it desires to see good done, good fostered in all areas of life. That as a church, we pursue selflessness motivated by God's love. We even read in the next verse love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices. In the truth. So we have to say that when we say love, we aren't talking about a general permissiveness that just sorts of sort of smiles right at everyone, that treats God as some kind of heavenly grandfather that just gives his thumbs up to everyone and calls it love. This ooey gooey nonsense. We have to acknowledge that it is unloving. To hide the truth. That it is, it, it is unloving to tell people everything is all right when it is not. But that it is loving to challenge people with the truth. I always remember the story. Uh, I told the story recently with my MC, and nobody knew who I was talking about. Who knows who Penn Teller is? Oh, that's Penn and Teller. So, tell, er, Pen? Yeah, Pen Um, Hardcore atheist Right Speaks out against Christianity all the time But he has this story that he tells Of someone, a Christian Coming to him And saying to him If you don't repent of your sins And trust in Jesus You're going to go to hell And Pendulet When he tells this story Says it was one of the most loving things A Christian has ever done for him That it's loving To tell people when something is wrong, especially when eternity is at stake. But there is confusion among some believers these days that insist on telling the truth and calling it love when all they're really doing is just being jerks for Jesus. They're just being jerks for Jesus. Don't be a jerk for Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you to be a jerk for him. There is a difference between telling the truth in love and telling the truth in frustration and hate. But as a church, we are to proclaim the truth, being motivated by godly love. As we think about love, love is patient, right? Love is kind. It is not arrogant. It is not boastful but it rejoices with the truth. Friends, there is no greater love than that which was displayed on the cross. That Christ died for his enemies. That he makes his enemies his friends. Christians are who they are because of their Christ. Amen? The church is the body of Christ. And since Christ is our head, love guides us in all things. If you're here today, and you're not a Christian, and you don't know the love of Christ, but only know of the the hate of some professing Christians, please, Christ is love because God is love. And Christ's most loving action was to hang on that cross and die for his enemies. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friend, if you don't know that love, embrace Christ. Embrace that love. Come to Christ in faith, believing And trusting that he has died for you. For those who are Christians here today. We've said many hard things this morning. We must not ignore the fog caused by oppression, abuse, and hate. We must acknowledge it. We have to. Or else we'll make shipwrecks of our faith or the faith of others. Friends, we look through the fog. We look for the light of Christ. Because the light of Christ is the church's only hope when faced with the fog caused by oppression, abuse, and hate. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious and most merciful God, our God who is love, We acknowledge that Christians have not always lived up to who you are. But, O Lord, we are not who we are because of what we've done. We are who we are because of what Christ has done. So, Lord, have mercy. Sanctify us every day. Help us to acknowledge our own faults. And to pursue the light. To pursue Christ's light. Because he is the light of the world. Who's come into the world. To give light to every man. So God be glorified in these things. We pray and ask this. In Jesus name. Amen. Brothers and sisters. We have the opportunity. To come and participate. In the Lord's Supper together. We read in 1 Corinthians 10 the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation?